On the 9th of March 2008, 38 minutes into a live recording with a sustained synth pad holding the atmosphere, the lights of Australia's Acer Arena, packed with over 10,000 people, dimmed until only a few stage lights were focused on one solitary man. Mike Gugliamucci, with an oxygen tube feeding his nostrils, an oxygen tank trailing behind him, took to the stage and read from a well-worn Bible, Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 5. He ended with a very emphatic and impassioned, by his stripes, we are healed. The lights continued to lower until all that could be seen was the massive, gigantic screen with the scripture on it. The instrumental introduction gained momentum and although unable to complete the first few lines of the song, a backlit mic sang the most beautiful and anointed song that rapidly became number two on the Australian Christian music charts, Healer. I believe you're my healer. The audience were weeping and broken. But five and a half months later, Mike felt that God spoke to him a dream and challenged him to come true, to come clean. And he said to him, the truth will set you free. Mike opened up to his wife that he'd been walking a lie for, at that stage, two years, where he'd been lying that he had an extreme form of cancer. But the reality was that he'd been lying for 16 years. He'd been battling with a pornography addiction that he had hidden behind disease and illness after illness. He had deceived family, friends, and thousands of fans. But most of all, he had deceived himself. He even showed physical signs of being sick. He literally was vomiting, and his head was falling out. Allow me to read Luke 18, verse 9 to 14, with a little bit of poetic license. Then Jesus gave this illustration to certain people who were confident of their own goodness and looked down on others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was despised by society because he was obsessed with watching porn. The Pharisee stood and prayed like this with himself, Oh God, I do thank you that I am not like the rest of mankind, greedy, dishonest, impure, or even like that man obsessed with porn over there. I fast twice every week. I give away a tenth of all my income. But the man obsessed with porn stood in a corner, in a distant corner, scarcely daring to look up to heaven, and with a gesture of despair said, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. I assure you, that he was the man who went home justified in God's sight rather than the other one. For everyone who sets himself up as somebody will become a nobody. And the man who makes himself a nobody will come become somebody. A natural reaction to Mike's story could be to sit in self-righteous horror and condemnation. And I certainly don't stand here to condone his behavior 
in any measure. But Mike was a sick man, and while he did not have physical cancer, he was most certainly afflicted with the greatest cancer in the church today, pornography. The sad reality is that Mike is one of many who are afflicted with the same cancer in our churches and who have chosen to conceal their struggles behind various masks. Prior to COVID, 66% of men and 41% of women were watching porn on a monthly basis. Amongst self-identified Christians in the 18 to 30-year-old age group, 79% of women, of men, sorry, and women, 73%, say they watch porn at least once a month or more. Of the 63% of men in that age group, self-identified Christian men watch porn several times a week. 47% of American families report that pornography is a problem in the home. Some of us may have heard the statistic before. The heart sore thing is that this is a statistic from 10 years ago. If we were to do a current statistic, I would say that that figure would be much higher. And thankfully, we are getting to do a project in South Africa next year where we are doing an evaluation of pornography in South Africa. More recently, over the COVID pandemic, the last pornographic website has seen an 18% increase in traffic. A subject previously taboo in the church and in many Christian conversations can no longer be kept in the dark. By not addressing pornography in the church, we do communicate. We communicate that talking about pornography is shameful, that it is not acceptable for others to open up about their stories, and that it is okay for the enemy to have free reign to impose his agenda in the very area in which we have abdicated responsibility. We are called to be watchmen. We are called to sound a warning when the enemy is approaching, but we have an enemy in the camp, and this warning is long overdue. As a family, we have chosen to shed light on our stories because every time we do this, we give permission for others to do the same with their stories. Our heart is that the comfort that we have received and the support that we have received in our journeys is the same comfort and support that we give to others. And I want to honour my husband and I want to honour my son for their openness and their support of me sharing just a little part of their journeys today. To cut a long, cute, warm, fuzzy, 18-month story short, Brahm and I met as youth leaders of two different churches. We were married one and a half years after meeting. And although there were some de very definite red flags along the way, it was not until four years into our marriage that things started to go haywire. His use, very irregular use of pornography, became misuse of pornography, which became abuse of pornography, which escalated into the place where he was trapped in a cycle of addiction. Through his work, he'd had access to hardcore, hardcore pornographic magazines. And following on from that, the internet and the smartphones made access to pornography very easy, very available, very in his face. And obviously his use of pornography escalated to a whole new level. We were actually leaders of worship teams at that time. We actually came here to home ground to attend a worship conference, worship workshop. 
with Katie before she got married and it was so exciting it was absolutely delightful we were home group leaders we were on eldership in our previous church as well and I trust that these were in the good times of Brahms cycle of addiction which we didn't understand at that time we did seek help we went on marriage encounter weekends we broke generational curses we broke self soul ties Brahms went for deliverance he opened up to various pastors he opened up to his men's accountability group he went to see a, a counseling psychologist a marriage therapist I prayed uh, I've got journals of prayers that I prayed we went to see a Christian sexologist we went to see a Christian clinical psychologist who specialized in pornography and sex addiction. While some of these would help temporarily, nothing could sustain Brahms sobriety. The reality is that we, have a, we as a church have not always known how to help someone who's battling in this area. And for the most part, we have treated someone watching pornography or engaged in sexual vice as someone living a moral failure who just needs to stop doing what they are doing and to exercise self-control. To tell someone who's addicted to pornography to just simply stop is like telling someone who's hooked on crack cocaine to just stop. It might be sitting there, but just don't touch it. It just is not helpful and doesn't work. On top of that, telling the spouse of a pornography addict to be sexually generous or more sexually generous when she's experiencing some form of abuse and that if she were to pray harder, he would be doing better, is likely to cause secondary trauma in a situation where she will be already experiencing high levels of trauma. So you may be asking, as one of our Christian counselors did, so what's wrong with watching a little bit of pornography? In my shock state, and I'm not always very quick on my feet, but in my shock state, I answered, it's what it brings into the bedroom. And this is 100% true, and there's so much more. Daniel Amen, who's done incredible work around brain functionality, has said that there is no difference in the brain and the areas of the brain that light up if I am engaged in a behavior or I'm watching someone else who's engaged in that behavior. It's exactly the same areas of the brain that light up and there's no difference in our brain in terms of how those two activities are processed. But Jesus was actually the first one to allude to this. When he said in Matthew 5 verse 8, But I say to you, every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The reality is that what we are watching will play out in our lives. Jensen Franklin's quote, which I have loved for years and I've used it on my email as a signature at one stage in my life, for many years in my life, said our lives will move in the direction of the dominant images in our mind. And this is no more true than when we are engaged in pornography. It's really the law of sowing and reaping. We have heard stories of adolescents who learnt about their sexuality or learnt about sexuality from pornography. And their very first experience of porn involved kicking, gagging, spitting, strangling, and often so much more. The sad part is that the girls thought this was what was to be expected because they'd watched pornography as well and they expected that sex was about being abused and, and that was the norm. We can think, well, it's just teenagers who might not know better. I've been exposed in the last couple of weeks to a marriage where a woman is pregnant and she's experiencing that from her husband. Studies found that in the 50 most popular pornographic videos, 
88% of these displayed physical violence, mostly towards women and girls, and perpetrated mostly by men. It is not a far stretch to believe that, as a number of studies have shown, gender-based violence is inspired by and fueled by pornography. Mary Ann Layden, Director of Sexual Trauma and Psychopathology at Pennsylvania University, has said that pornography has played a part in every case of sexual violence that she treated. And this was over a 10-year span when she looked back at each case to see if pornography had played a part. She saw that it had been so in every case. Where pornography is being watched in a marriage, the likelihood of marital infidelity increases by 300%. According to the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, which is not a Christian organization, an obsessive interest in pornographic websites is a contributing factor in 56% of divorces cases. Watching pornography is not an innocuous pastime. If we just look at what happens in the brain of someone who's watching pornography, studies have shown that they experience a reduction in grey matter, and we know men don't have much to start with. I, I joke. Spec scans of the brains of those who watch pornography and those who are addicted to heroin show almost the same very, very extensive damage. Most of this damage occurs in the prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of our brain. It's the area where good decision making is made, it's the area of impulse control, and it's the area of planning. So this plays out in someone who's watching pornography in terms of increasing insecurity, lacking internal confidence, a decrease in motivation and creativity. And the person tends to sleep a lot, be very tired all the time, come across as very lazy and uninvolved. And this is what we experienced in Brahm's life and, and some of my son's life as well when he was engaged in this area. It seemed in my husband's life that there were a lack of blessings. There was a lack of blessings over his life. There were deals that he seemed on the edge of signing and at the last minute they would fall through. He would try and force deals to happen. He would try and make them happen instead of motivating the deals to happen because that was the space he was living in. So even though he didn't have an affair in the strictest sense of the word, because he had bonded with pornography, the pornography he had watched, he became more and more emotionally detached and disconnected from those around him. This frustration with himself played out in his relationship with others. It played out in terms of disrespect of others, in terms of verbal abuse of others, and especially myself. I felt incredibly manipulated and coerced by him. He was often very angry, very explosive, and he was extremely self-absorbed, which was confirmed by psychologists and pastors. It felt like he was all about what he was getting and what he needed rather than about what he was giving and what he was contributing. Josh McDowell says that the number one hurting person in the church today are the spouses of porn addicts. So both the spouse and the guy needing recovery from porn addiction, and I'm talking about guys here and I know that there are many women involved as well, so in both of these cases, both the spouse and the person battling pornography addiction need to walk a journey of recovery, need to walk a journey of healing. From my side, I experienced many of the same symptoms of someone who's battling with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. 
Statistics show this to be true of 70% of spouses of porn addicts. Part of some of the symptoms of PTSD are emotional numbness and dissociation. The only way I could survive was to dissociate myself emotionally from what was happening in order to do what I needed to do in life. There would be times of hypervigilance and irritability where I couldn't sleep for days on end. I, I was in this panic stage and I couldn't sleep. I ended up having incredibly severe depression at the end of 2009 where I was working full-time for my husband. I was not being validated for what I do, did, was doing. I ended up not getting out of bed some days. I ended up not bathing, dressing, and getting out of my pajamas. I ended up not taking my son, who I absolutely adore, to school. I didn't have the energy to do that. I didn't have the energy to make meals and pack lunches. I became very, very useless and very lack. I, I was unable to contribute in the state that I was in. A loss of interest in pleasurable activities was also very prevalent in my life, and that included gardening. One of the strong symptoms of PTSD is social isolation. 68% of women whose husbands battle a sex addiction either feel isolated or isolate themselves due to shame. 13.64 contemplate suicide as the ultimate form of isolation. I was one of those. Added to this were feelings of mistrust. Where did the lies begin and end? Where has my marriage been real? Where has it not been real? Feelings of going crazy. My gut told me certain things were not right, but he was saying everything was right. And he was telling me that I was going crazy, or I felt like he was telling me I was going crazy. These are things common to just about every woman who has walked the journey that I've walked. Not feeling safe was very much a part of where I was at, and that was a big thing that I've had to walk through. Because I didn't feel safe, I couldn't rest at home, so I had to be stronger as a woman because I didn't have a catch net at home. I chose, as many women have done, to rather keep quiet for the sake of peace, even though I now recognize that as false peace. I lost my voice. It was better to stay quiet than it was to have an opinion or to speak out and to risk aggression and a fight and whatever would follow. Although successful and very esteemed in my career, I felt like a doormat at home. But I stayed. I stayed because I had nowhere to go. I stayed because I had no finances to go anywhere. And I stayed, ironically, to protect my son. As traumatic and as dramatic as all of this sounds, and it really was, my personal breakthrough came the day that I walked into a Project Exodus recovery group. I started to experience hope. I was at a really low point in my life, having exhausted all other options. On top of this, my dad had recently died, not even two months prior. My mom was busy dying, and I was traveling daily up to Howick, a one-hour one journey up to Howick every day to see her. My husband at this stage was emotionally absent. He was unable to support me. He didn't even sit next to me when my dad, in my dad's memorial. I didn't realize he was taking strain. I mean, I realized he was taking strain, but I didn't realize he'd relapsed. My son had just opened up about his 10-year battle with pornography as well. SARS had taken half of my salary because my husband's business was in my name, and the sheriff had come to serve notice on our house as well. In the Project Exodus Recovery Group, for the first time, I felt that I'd been heard. 
I felt that I was in a situation where no one was trying to fix me, no one was trying to rescue me, no one was trying to advise me. I felt valid, validated, I felt protected, and I felt safe. I was given the freedom to speak without fear of repercussion, and regardless and independent of what my husband chose to do, I had started a journey of recovery. He had his own decision to make. He needed to decide how desperate he was for recovery. I learned that I needed to walk my own journey of recovery, and I found that safe space week after week after week in one of the Project Exodus groups. Although I initially resented that I had to go to the group, when everyone was saying, I'm so grateful to be here, I'm grateful for my recovery, I could not be honest and say that in the beginning because I felt like this was his problem and I'm having to be here and there was a lot of resentment, but I got over that as well. We each needed to walk our individual journeys of recovery. It's like walking on both sides of a river, him on one side, me on the other side, embracing our own journeys of recovery and eventually coming together, eventually merging into one again. And the stronger our individual journeys were, the stronger our marriage has been. And what a journey it has been. My husband has been in recovery for over two and a half years now. There is no quick fix where there has been a porn or sexual addiction. Someone who's been molded by watching porn over decades has a lot of rewiring of the brain to do and a lot of behavior modification to engage in. We both still have a path to go and I'm 100% okay with that as long as we're going in the right direction. If I have to sum up things that were vital to our recovery, joining the Project Exodus recovery groups was number one. Getting rid of our TV, which was a gateway for him back into pornography, was so good. It showed his desperation, to me it showed his desperation to overcome this addiction. Having accountability software put on all his devices and ensuring that he had reputable accountability partners in place, which couldn't be me, was also very helpful to me because I could trust his journey to somewhere else, someone else, and I could walk my own journey of recovery. Working out of home was not a solution for him. He had to start working in a public place so that he would not be tempted by being isolated. We read and we learned a lot from the journeys of others who have come through this. For me, journaling was huge to get the feelings out of myself and not to bottle the feelings up. It's very hard to talk about intimate things with many, many people or with a few people even. So to get that out was just so important. Helping others in their journey, in their journeys has also been so important for us. Because for 20 years, 20 plus years, we had no one that we could turn to that could walk the journey with us who understood the journey that we were walking. For me, I'm learning to value myself and to be authentic with my desires and my feelings and to not define myself by my husband's up and down. We, I have created safe spaces in my life where I can open up if I'm taking strain emotionally. While God never calls us to condone sin, he also does not call us to condemn the sinner. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the conviction. Where we see sexual sin as greater than any other sins, I have a sneaky suspicion that God sees self-righteousness, pride, and hypocrisy as worse. These were things I had to deal with in my own life. In John 8, verse 2 to 11, the scribes and the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman that was caught in adultery. 
and informed Jesus, as though he didn't know, that she should be stoned according to the law. They already had manipulated what the law said because the law had said both the people caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. But that's an aside for another day. Jesus said to them, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he wrote in the dust. And when he got up, he said to the woman, Everyone else had dissipated one by one they had left. He spoke to the woman. And he said to her, Does no one condemn you? And she said, No. And he said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. I want to close by thanking Home Ground for giving me the opportunity to speak on something that I am incredibly passionate about, a topic that is traditionally taboo from the church platform. As a church, we are called to be culturally relevant. There are many solutions available, including the Monday night Home Ground Recovery Group. This all starts, all recovery starts with a conversation. And just by speaking, we remove the shame and create space for healing of the greatest cancer in the church today, of the number one hurting person in our churches today. So today I charge you with Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you because the Lord has anointed you to proclaim good news of hope to the poor. He has sent you to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for prisoners. Thank you.